So uh, this morning we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're picking up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 4. Uh, but before we move forward, I want to just quickly circle back to the sermon last week and uh, thank Nate for preaching last week as well. Uh, so last week we left off, Jesus was on the shores of Lake Galilee, and he is no longer this obscure country rabbi. Like, word is out. Everybody knows about Jesus, and the crowds are coming from far and wide to, to witness him firsthand. He is the miracle worker. He's the one who teaches, and people observe his teaching is with authority. Like, there's something different about his teaching than, than the teaching that they're accustomed to. He's also the rebel. He's the rebel who dares to defy the the social and religious conventions of the day. He openly rebukes powerful, influential religious leaders. He welcomes and dines with sinners. And so the crowds are, are growing and growing, and they're swelling to so much that on this particular day, Jesus is along the shore of Lake Galilee, and he has to get in a boat and just set out and put a little distance between him and the crowd, and as he does, he, he begins to teach. And he teaches using stories, parables. And his stories, they're unique as, as well. They are, they're not complex. On one hand, they are so simple that even a child, perfect for a children's sermon, a child can get it. And yet, they're so multi-layered that only those who are aided by the Holy Spirit are really able to perceive what it is that he's saying, which, by the way, is why we pray before we read God's word, because we recognize that, that this word, for us to perceive what God is saying, the spirit has to aid uh, in that, or we'll never get it. So the stories that Jesus told were meant to reveal God's truth to some while veiling it from others. You need to hear that, because that, that's a challenging statement. The stories that Jesus told were meant to reveal the truth of God to some, while at the same time veiling it from others. The stories were meant to be glasses to help some see, and a blindfold to keep others from seeing. So listen again to what you read last week. The secret of the kingdom of God, Jesus said, has been given to you, the disciples. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they might be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. I have wrestled with this teaching for a long time. We were talking about it in our, our prayer time before uh, the service and Tom said, uh, he's been wrestling with that for a, a long time as well. So, so what's going on? This doesn't seem right. Like, why is Jesus not putting the cookies, metaphorically speaking, on the bottom shelf so that everybody can grab a cookie? Instead, he's, he's teaching in such a way that only some are going to get it, but there's others who are not going to get it, and that seems to be his intent so that's a really difficult question, one that I want to offer three thoughts to. 
The first is that I, I think the reason we're uncomfortable with this, the idea that Jesus would purposely teach to reach some and not reach others, the reason we're uncomfortable with that idea is because we're also uncomfortable with the, the idea of God being sovereign. That God is, is completely sovereign. We all like the idea that, that we have free will. That we get to choose what we accept, what we reject. We, we love the fact that we have this liberty. But when it comes down to it, we don't so much like the idea that, that God is sovereign, that he has free will that he gets to choose what and who he accepts and who he rejects. If God's word is such that it reveals the truth to some and veils the truth to others, is that not God's prerogative? And Romans says it even more forcefully. It says, who are we to talk back to God as if he's doing something wrong? The second thought in relation to this is that we have an infatuation with the crowd. We love the crowd. The more, the merrier, the bigger, the better. Jesus didn't share that same infatuation. He attracted a crowd everywhere he went. We've seen this in the Gospel of Mark. Everywhere he goes, there's a crowd, but he was never chasing the crowd. In fact, when the crowd would gather, he would deliberately say things that would thin the crowd out. He'd say challenging things like this. If y'all want to follow me, you must pick up your cross. And with that, the, the crowd would thin out. You're going to seek me and you're going to find me, he said, when you seek me with all your heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they are the ones who will be filled. So Jesus isn't looking for a crowd. He's looking for disciples. He's looking for people who are hungry. He's looking for people who are thirsty. Not just anybody, but people who are hungry and thirsty. He's looking for those who aren't going to be turned away by the fact that discipleship involves a cross. My third thought to this difficult teaching is, is that in the parable that he told, in the parable of the sower, the seed gets scattered on four different soils. And it only flourishes in the good soil. What Jesus is inviting us to do is to ask a different question. Instead of asking the question, Jesus, why do you reveal your truth to some and, and not to others? The question we're invited to ask is, what kind of soil am I? A am I hard soil, disinterested in the, the work of God in my life? Am I rocky soil, easily swayed by emotion, quick to, quick to start, but also quick to quit? Am I thorny soil, more obsessed with the things of this world, more eager to get ahead than to, to get God, overwhelmed by all the worries of the world? Or am I good soil, seeking first the kingdom of God, knowing that all the rest will be taken care of in time? So this is a question that we ought to be asking. What kind of soil am I? And it's also the prayer that we ought to be praying. Lord, make me good soil. Where the, the soil of my heart is hard, parse it, chop it, till it, do whatever you need to to, to tenderize my heart. 
Lord, where the soil of my, my heart is rocky, filter it out. Where it's thorny, free me from those things that, that have their tentacles on me. And where the soil of my heart is good, continue to nourish it, Lord. And so he tells this parable, and after inviting the crowds to consider what kind of soil they were, he went on to tell two more parables, both of them still involving seeds. The first parable that we're not going to talk about this morning was basically illustrated in the children's sermon. The farmer sows the seed, goes to bed, wakes up, and there is the, the, the crop, and he doesn't know how it happened. God is always at work behind the scenes. His word is always working. But the second parable he told is the parable of the mustard seed. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Join me as we pray. Father God, by the power of your spirit, we pray that we would not only see this morning, but we would perceive, not only hear, but that we would understand. And that our hearts would be receptive, that our hearts would be good soil for the receiving of your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is still in the same boat, along the same shore, speaking to the same people. And he begins to tell a couple parables, and he comes to the parable of the, the mustard seed, and, and both parables begin the same way. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is Jesus' favorite thing to talk about, the kingdom of God. In the Gospel of Mark, it's the very first thing that's recorded, Jesus saying, repent, believe the good news, the kingdom of God is near. He loves to talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the same thing. And what's also uh, perfect is that the people love to hear about the kingdom of God. This is their favorite subject as well. They love to hear about this, this kingdom because they are aching for the kingdom of God. They are aching to be liberated, to have a, a kingdom that is no longer going to be so easily shaken. They know their history well. God sent Moses to liberate his people from Egypt. God sent David to defeat Goliath and, and free them from the Philistines. God sent Nehemiah to rebuild the broken walls and restore their city. And now God had sent Jesus, the Messiah in shining armor, who's going to liberate them from Rome. He's going to defeat the Goliath Empire. He's going to restore the grandeur of their once proud city. This kingdom that they longed for was one of power and authority, a beautiful kingdom, a majestic kingdom, a powerful, glorious, almighty kingdom, one that wouldn't be subject to future invading armies. It couldn't come fast enough. And so when Jesus began his parable and said, this is what the kingdom of God is like, everybody leaned in. This is about to get really exciting. So imagine their response when they heard him say this. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed. a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed that you plant in the ground. And yet, when it's planted, 
It grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the year can perch in its shade. I don't think this is what they were hoping to hear that day. This was Jesus' opportunity. The crowd had swelled to this enormous crowd. Jesus is in the position of being able to capitalize on his popularity. If he was ready to give a fired up, impassioned, rally the troops, let's overthrow our adversaries type of speech, the people would have been right behind him. But instead, when they all lean in to listen, they hear him say, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Really? Really, Jesus? One of the smallest seeds that exists, a seed that even after it grows into a plant, let's be honest, it's nothing more than a shrub. I mean, maybe eight, nine, ten feet high. Like, can't we aim a little higher? Can't we dream a little bigger. The kingdom of heaven is like the majestic and mighty cedars of Lebanon. Now that would be something. The kingdom of heaven is like Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark came to, to rest. The kingdom of heaven is like all of Pharaoh's, char Pharaoh's chariots, like 10,000 Goliaths, like all of Nebuchadnezzar's great army combined. Now we're talking much better than the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And so perhaps the crowd thinned out once again. So what's Jesus saying? Comparing the kingdom of God to a, a mustard seed? Well, I think two primary things. The first thing he's saying is that he's telling us that his kingdom comes in ways that to us seem inconsequential. No chariots, no Goliaths, no armies. A kingdom that is like a mustard seed isn't going to be a threat to anybody. Nobody's going to even see it coming. It's laughable. It's like little David going out against Goliath with his few little stones. Please, the kingdom of God like a mustard seed? This kingdom that shall have no end not going to be obtained by military conquest. God's not going to amass a legion of soldiers, but instead a, a small fellowship of disciples. He's not going to rain down fire from heaven on his enemies, even though he could, but instead he's going to work quietly, one person at a time. He's going to heal a person, and then you know what he's going to tell them? Don't go tell anybody. Let's just keep this between us. Stay, stay quiet. He's not going to choose the best and the brightest to be part of his crackerjack team. He's going to choose who people probably thought were the least and the last. And when he finally has a victory parade, he's not going to ride in on a stallion. It's going to be the colt, the foal of a donkey. And finally, the crown he wears not going to be made of gold inset with precious jewels. It's going to be made of twigs and thorns. A single seed, one seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. What good is a single seed? 
So let's think through some of the stories that we've talked about in recent weeks. Jesus planted a single seed in the life of Matthew when he was walking one day past the tax collector's booth and he looked in and he just gave him a simple invitation, follow me. Matthew, son of Alphaeus, follow me. That was the planting of a single seed and look what happened. Matthew got up, left his tax collector's booth, became one of his disciples, started writing about things that he was observing. His writings got included in God's word, the gospel according to St. Matthew, and now it's been read by billions of people who have come to Christ because of Matthew and what he, he did because Jesus planted a single seed. Matthew, follow me. How about Mary Magdalene? This woman oppressed with, with and tormented by demons, Jesus plants the seed by setting her free from her torment. She joins the group of disciples. In fact, the gospel says she funded it. She and several other women are funding Jesus' ministry. She's there at the cross. She watches her Savior die. She's the very first one to the tomb, the empty tomb the very first one to interact with the risen Savior, the very first one to testify to the others, he's risen. All because Jesus planted a single seed. Jesus stopped and engaged with the children. I love that. Like, how does the, the, the Messiah who has this kingdom to build, how does he have time to stop and engage and play with children. He goes on to say, nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless they become like a child. What looked like a distraction, what looked like an interruption, interruption was actually Jesus building his kingdom. I love the saying, and I've said it often, if you want to change the world, work with children. Jesus is building his kingdom. Now, we don't know what happens in the lives of those children. But I have no doubt that God used those children in mighty ways. All throughout the scripture, we see God use work in these ways that seem inconsequential. I think of Philip walking along a desert road. He sees a chariot, and prompted by the Holy Spirit, he walks up to the chariot. Here's someone reading the, gospel, uh, the, the book of Isaiah, plants a seed. Do you understand what you're reading? And the next thing we know, the chariot is stopped and they're in a river and the Ethiopian is getting baptized. I think of Paul and Silas going to Philippi. They've got this grand vision of, of spreading the gospel. And here they are, they're all alone and they look and there's a few women. They're by the river and they're praying. And Paul and Silas say, well, let's, let's go talk to them. And they strike up a conversation. And the next thing we know, they're in Lydia's house. And Lydia's getting baptized, and all of Lydia's family and household's getting baptized. And Lydia's house becomes the hub of the expansion of the gospel to the Western world, all because a, a seed of a conversation was planted. I think of Jason Richardson. You're not going to find his story in the Bible. He was the high school senior who welcomed me one day to youth group. I came feeling awkward and and he did this incredible thing of walking over to me and saying hello and planted a little seed in my life. I think of Mark Lehman, the man in college who invested time in me, who believed that God could use me when I didn't believe that myself. 
I could go on thinking of all the people that have planted seeds in my life. I trust that you could think of, of some people that have planted seeds in your life. The kingdom of God is like a seed, a single seed that gets planted. What that means is that there is no such thing as an inconsequential conversation, encounter, step of faith, action, prayer. This last week, I was standing in the home of a, a neighbor just a couple houses down, and uh, the husband is on hospice. He's slowly dying. And uh, the reason I was in that home and able to pray with him and pray with his wife is because this church planted a seed a couple years ago of a community meal. And so we got to know this family. And now we're part of this family's life, walking through a very difficult time. When you look at a seed, the seeds in the window, you don't see what it's going to become. All you see is the seed. You believe in the promise of what is to come, but you can't see it. So when, when this church decided to start a weekly community meal, all we saw was the seed of that. But you know what I see now? I see Ralph North somewhere in the congregation. Where are you, Ralph? Right there. And I see Bree Brown right there. And I see Eleanor and and Greg Roman Pugh, and I see Tim Hook, and Brent Bielema, and Jim Vogel, and Susie, I don't know her last name, but I'm going to get to know her last name, and Joe Postma. And these are all things that when we planted the seed, we didn't know that that would happen. And the great news is that the mustard tree is still growing, which means there's more people that we don't know yet, that one day, Lord willing, we're going to get to know. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The mustard seed of God's kingdom is presently growing, even though we can't perceive it. And we don't know what it's going to become, but it's going to be more wonderful and glorious than we can possibly imagine. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It means that his kingdom grows in ways that are seemingly inconsequential, and it also means that God's kingdom advances in God's time. There's not going to be a watermelon at the end of the service, uh, unfortunately. Whereas we don't want to wait, we want things fast, we want to see progress right away, God's kingdom comes in God's time. I heard about uh, some seeds that are in the Mojave Desert, and they're lying dormant in the desert floor, in earth that is dry and cracked, and, and they can lie dormant for 17 years. And then one day, the heavens open up, and a little rain comes down, and those dormant seeds sprout. They germinate, and the desert floor becomes covered with green plants. Some of you have been planting seeds, you've been praying for a family member for, for months, for years perhaps, and it may seem like absolutely nothing is happening to that seed that you've planted. But one timely rainfall sent by God and everything can change in a moment. I'm going to close with a scripture from Galatians, because God's kingdom is like a mustard seed, we're called to persevere and not give up. 
The scripture says this, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, his time, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us plant seeds. Let us do good to all people. If you want to be used by God, if you want to change the world, plant a seed. Join me as we pray. Father, uh, we know that your uh, advancing of your kingdom is your work. Lord, that it only happens by your spirit. And yet you've invited us to, to partner with you. You've invited us to, to plant seeds. And so, Lord, help us not become weary. Help us uh, persevere in the faith and continue to plant seeds. And Lord, we pray for the, the timely rainfall that you would send the rain and that you would bring transformation in our life and, and in the lives of those we love. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.